Hey everyone, welcome back, I hope, to the Fire the Cannon podcast. We're doing a very special episode this week. Normally, as I hope you know, we are the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. However, last week we already read Romeo and Juliet and we decided, you know what, you can stay in there. We like you. And so <laughs> this week we have a guest who's going to Who could have predicted that. <laughs> we have a guest who's going to talk to us about that a little bit further. But before we introduce our guest, I'm your host, Rachel. I'm your other host, Jackie. I'm Theo, the producer. So our guest this week is historian and FNSF writer. Ada Palmer. She has just finished her hopefully first book series, the Terragnota series, which <laughs> I think I mentioned to you, I haven't finished the final book because I was waiting for Steven, my boyfriend, to read it so that we could actually talk together. Because normally I read the book and then it takes him like a year and a half to read it. And by the time he's done, I've forgotten like the little specifics. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, this time I'm going <laughs> to read alongside. But it's taken him a while. So <laughs> I just started it and I'm already really enjoying it. So before we start talking, if anyone would like to read her books, the first one is called Two Like the Lightning, which is a line that we talked about from Romeo and Juliet. So mm -hmm. she is a professor at the University of Chicago. And what is it you teach exactly? I focus on the history of how ideas change over time. Mm. Uh, so I look a lot at, you know, how did we get from believing that there's inherent hierarchy in the world to not believing that there's inherent hierarchy in the world? Mm. Or how did we go from believing that vacuum was the stupidest idea ever to mm -hmm. believing that vacuum mm -hmm. exists? And especially I look at unpopular and controversial ideas and how they manage to survive and be transmitted in cultures that are hostile to them. Mm. So I study a lot of different things that seem unrelated to each other, but what they have in common is that they were taboo or frightening to people. So I study the history of homosexuality and homoerotic literature and magic and witchcraft and belief in the existence of atoms and vacuum. Heresy. And you think those <laughs> things aren't similar to each other, right? But they're all mm. in that category of either heresy or just things that made European society uncomfortable in a lot of ways but nonetheless kept being discussed and transmitted and mm -hmm. you know, manuscripts kept being copied. And the interesting question is, what kinds of social structures make a culture willing to transmit ideas that the majority of that culture doesn't like? Wow. It, it sounds like there's a lot of crossover with philosophy. There is. Uh, but also it's much more... Often it's noticing things like there's been a change in information technology, a development in the printing press, or a development in the distribution methods for news. Uh, so looking at a lot of technical things like the cost of paper changing mm. and how that can impact where ideas can go. So it's a little less about the ideas themselves and whether they're true or false mm -hmm. than it is about the people and the social structures and the technologies that are spreading those ideas around. <laughs> but it means that I do the Italian Renaissance. Uh, and I also do Shakespeare and I do terrible popes and I do feuds and I do the Black Death. And uh, I, 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 like most Black Death scholars, am very sad that my specialty is suddenly extremely oh. relevant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I have so um, many questions for you. <laughs> which I'm happy to talk about. But it also means that I have a background on Shakespeare because Shakespeare is looking at Italy of the centuries right before him. 
him Mm -hmm. when he sets plays like Romeo and Juliet in his imaginary version of Italy of the century before slash semi-contemporaneous with himself. Mm. And it makes you read the plays very differently when you have all of this context much of which Shakespeare had, some of which Shakespeare didn't, because, of course, he's not from Renaissance Italy. He's from late Renaissance England. And so he has access to Italy through travelogues and through books and through uh, translated literature. Mm -hmm. And he has a version of Italy that is a step removed from Italy, Italy, but that is very strongly informed by the stuff that I got to know really well while I was working on the Inquisition and history of censorship. So he sort of had like the Rick Steves version of Italy, it sounds like. I mean, he was smart and he read a lot and he read a lot of the best stuff that was coming out in English on Italy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would compare him more to somebody who really seriously does their research to write historical fiction rather than somebody who's doing the sort of light rate travelogue stuff, but some of it is frivolous and silly and you get amazing moments like how in Cymbeline, somehow there are ancient Romans and also separately there are Italians at the same time. And you're like, this doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Uh, I wonder, um, what is it about the Renaissance period that you feel specifically or, um, you know, more so draws you in than other periods in relation to your ideas or your questions about how dangerous ideas get promulgated? So the Renaissance is really neat because it's a moment at which there was an active project to try to change the world using ideas. There was a perception that there was a crisis and everything was miserable. (laughs) Also, they were right. My very favorite document from the Renaissance is this amazing letter that a friend of Machiavelli's wrote to Machiavelli at one point. Machiavelli, this is around 1506, 1503, somewhere in there, 1506, I think. Machiavelli had been writing a short history in in verse of the decade right before, like of that period. And the friend read it and wrote to Machiavelli and said, Machiavelli, you must write more. You must continue and finish this history because without a good history of this moment, future generations will never believe how terrible it was. And they will never forgive us for having lost so much so quickly. Ah. And he's talking about the decade that Michelangelo made the David and that Raphael is painting and that the Sistine is starting, you know, is is being decorated. And we look at this Mm -hmm. and we say, wait a minute, this is the golden age to us. How is it an apocalypse to the people who lived through it. Uh, And it's a golden age because it was an apocalypse. Uh, And they perceived the world to be suddenly filled with far more diseases than before, which was true, riddled with bigger, worse wars than before, which was true because technology was advancing. So the armies had better equipment and could destroy more stuff. And all of the art and architecture and experimentation and discovery that we see and recognize as a golden age is actually the, oh no, the world is on fire, do something desperation reaction of a culture that realizes that it's in an emergency. I wonder how how did he have such good self-awareness to be able to realize what would happen? And and, because I feel like a lot of people don't realize the importance of the time that they're in. I mean, it's not just one person. It's a whole team of people. And I think the answer is when your world gets precipitously worse quickly, a lot of people do notice. Right. A lot of us are noticing right now. It's not (laughs) uncommon for people to be aware of that and noticing, wow, I'm experiencing a lot more plagues than my parents' generation and their parents. I'm experiencing a lot more civil wars Mm -hmm. and civil strife and inequity and violence that my parents and their parents did. What can we do about 
this situation. Mm. And I don't want to monopolize the conversation at all, but I think that was kind of my question is like, I feel like a lot of us do have this sense. And at least for me, it's something that you're always kind of questioning, like, is this really a really bad time period? Because I haven't lived through any others. Maybe this is just normal. And you start to kind of have this imposter syndrome a little bit. I mean, I think a period can both be filled with terrible problems and be Mm -hmm. better than many earlier periods. We absolutely are facing terrible crises that we really have to do things about. But we (laughs) eradicated smallpox. We're close on polio. Our life expectancy is more than twice as long as the life expectancy that Machiavelli lived with. Mm -hmm. If I were to have extramarital sex, my father would not feel obliged to kill me out of honor. (laughs) Lots of things are better. That is true. (laughs) It's easy for us to forget those big, big gains because they're sort of in the background. Also, you know, the food I eat every day is mostly not rotten. (laughs) Mostly. And I don't have... A couple different types of intestinal parasites living in my guts inevitably because there's no refrigeration and everybody has stuff living in their guts eating them from the inside out. Humble brag. (laughs) We don't tend to remember how many small, terrible things were true of the past because we don't depict them in Mm -hmm. our fiction because they're not fun. When we go to historical fiction, we don't want to hear about Marie Antoinette having no (laughs) sanitation and constant Mm -hmm. stomach upset and, and terrible bowel pain. We leave it out. But it was real. And when we remind ourselves of how bad it was, we can realize, wow, we actually have made major positive changes. Like, hey, all of the people on this call don't currently have head lice. (laughs) Only one of us does, and we won't say who. (laughs) Up until about a hundred years ago, everyone had head lice all the time. So we we should be putting more of that stuff into our writing because it helps us feel better later on. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) We erase a lot of our historic achievements because we don't realize that they're achievements anymore and they're kind of gross, so we don't want to talk about them. Mm. Uh, But if we remind ourselves of them, that we say, you know, are the crises we're facing with plague and with climate change real? Absolutely. You know, are they going to be devastating lives? Do we have a great responsibility to take take action? Absolutely. But the fact that we all don't have head lice proves we can do this. (laughs) We can change the world for the better we have and we can do it again. I think in novels we write now, we should just constantly be mentioning, oh, and I didn't have head lice. (laughs) So people know. (laughs) There's this amazing painting in the Pitti Palace in uh, Florence uh, latish, it's a, I think it's a 16th century painting. And it's a painting of Venus, you know, Aphrodite, picking lice out of Cupid's hair. Because (laughs) lice were so ubiquitous that you would assume even the gods have had lice. It was such a normal experience. And just to wrap your head around that. Liciness is next to godliness. (laughs) I have had head lice, um, actually. It was one of the worst things that's ever happened to me in my life. So I think it's over. And it's (laughs) over, right. (laughs) I think you're right. Every time I want to think to myself, like, God, this just isn't going well. I don't have head lice. You know, it's a really easy thing to contextualize. And if you got them, you would have a way to deal with it and look forward to not having them again. That's true. I have a quick little head lice story that I don't think I told Jackie. (laughs) The time that I caught head lice once was in high school because, unfortunately, the girl that I stood next to in choir had like a very bad case of head lice and I got it. And my mom was like, okay, here, you know, here's this poison. I'm going to smear it on your scalp. So leave this on 
and I'll tell you when to take it off. So she put it on and like I wrapped my head in a plastic bag and then I went to sleep and then she was working at the time, like I think full time. And the next morning she didn't tell me to shower or take it off. So I'm like, okay, I guess I have to leave this poison on. So I went to school with like poison on my head. <laughs> and then when I got home, she's like, you are so only supposed to leave it on for a few hours. You've had it on for like 18 hours. Oh so I truly don't know what it happened, like what it did to me, but it can't have been good. Well, did it get rid of the lice? Yeah, it got rid of the lice, probably got rid of some brain cells, too. Similar for me, actually. So when I had it, I was in high school because my stepbrother brought it to the house and I'm the I was the only one that had light hair. And apparently they love light hair because they can hide their eggs in it better. Gross, right? But the grosser it is, the better we feel about not having them now, Mm -hmm. um, as we established. (laughs) And so I got it the worst out of everybody. And nothing worked like my mom we would wake up at five in the morning she would like comb through my hair with that tiny comb like we did all the poison we did the wash we did this we did that we washed everything constantly nothing worked the only thing that worked was that my dad at the time worked for um like a plant still her dad my still my dad but at the time (laughs) he worked for this company that like put plants into like corporate buildings and stuff and he had this like heavy duty insecticide that yeah is definitely poison and he put that all over my head and no more lice (laughs) also where am i (laughs) she immediately forgot how to read but (laughs) And it's a common experience. I think most people in the developed world still get head lice at least once. Yeah. But then we we deal with it. and Get rid of it in a day unless we're Jackie. Yeah, it's hard. As opposed to the, well, this is just going to be true. (laughs) So I didn't know, Rachel, if you had like specific questions or anything you wanted to ask. About lice or in general? (laughs) Uh, Well, probably about in general. I, I did have a question before we switched to talking about Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Which is, have you studied flat earthers at all? Because that seems like an idea where it used to be the majority and then you had like the dangerous. It was never the majority. Never. No. Because uh, they say that they have always been the case, that everyone <laughs> always thought the earth was flat. Yeah, and our old textbooks say, like, everyone thought the earth was flat, and then Columbus sailed, and then we knew it was round. But that's <laughs> just a lie. Uh, all the way through from antiquity, everybody knew flat earth or propaganda. That, uh, wow. the world was round. Well, it was a propaganda about trying to make Columbus seem more impressive than he was. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, you know, this is part of the celebration of, of 1492 as being unilaterally positive as opposed to being what we understand it to be a very complicated moment of mm-hmm. the Colombian exchange beginning and having devastating consequences as well as uh, world-changingly positive consequences uh, in other ways, like mostly Italy getting great food uh, <laughs> and Europe having access to spicy peppers. But um, no, Europe always knew the world was round. And in fact, the fascinating thing is where this modern myth of medieval Europe believing the earth was flat came from. And ah. you know, there are indeed uh, maps from the Middle Ages that are very different from our own, but it's not that they thought the earth was a sphere or was not a sphere. I'll give you two examples of of medieval geography ideas. Dante believes that the earth is a sphere and that the devil is in the middle of the earth. Like at the core? Yeah, the the core of the earth is is Satan. No one's ever proved him wrong, so as far as we know. (laughs) And the way gravity works is that good things go up toward God and bad things go down toward Satan. And that that is a a dominant medieval theory of gravity. (laughs) And hell works by when you die. It's not that there's a judge that says you must go to X place, which is the later sort of Protestant notion, but it's that you're your soul has a certain physical 
weight because of the sins that it's done. Mm -hmm. And like oil and water separating out in salad dressing, your soul goes either up or down to heaven or to hell to the place that is its correct buoyancy level in reality. Uh, Dante also believed that all the land was in the Northern Hemisphere uh, because at the time they knew about Northern Africa, but they didn't know about Sub-Saharan Africa. (laughs) Wait, wait, whoa. Couldn't you just ask someone? Aren't there any people that way? And they'd be like, yeah, we've trade with them. (laughs) Yeah, but it's hard to get across the Sahara. And there, it really was a very substantial barrier. And there wasn't a lot of trade across the Sahara. Mm -hmm. There was some, but Ethiopia, Egypt... Uh, those areas are major in the understandings of Europeans at that time. And uh, the other map I'm about to describe will give you a sense of that. Mm -hmm. But they just think Africa is a lot squatter than it is. They just think that it doesn't go very much past the Sahara. Hmm. So just because they couldn't cross the land, they just figured there must be no more land. Uh, So they think the Southern Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere is all ocean. And then the South Pole is the mountain of purgatory. Oh, Uh, And that's Dante's map. Uh, and so he does think you can sail to the South Pole, but that you'll end up in the afterlife. So it's a globe, but there's magic stuff on it. Yeah. Or, But to him, it's not. To him, it's perfectly physical. Hell is a physical mm-hmm. place. You know, if you dug a hole, you could end up in hell. He doesn't think it happens in a different layer of reality. He thinks it's in the material huh. world. Hell so, is a place on So Earth. going back to the gravity thing. So currently, because <laughs> I fall to the ground, it's because, like, I am sinful from birth or something. Is it like an original sin kind of thing? Or? It's part an original sin and also because you were made of earth we're made of mud we are humans humus humus and our bodies are therefore the same weight as dirt but for example air is morally superior to earth and air goes up and fire Uh fire is morally superior to air and so fire goes up Uh, and they have this idea that there are these spheres of fire and then air and then water and then earth which are the four elements which are in a moral hierarchy and that that's why things float and sink which by the way is at the background of those weird like witch trial things where you put someone to water to see if they float or sink those are related to these idea that gravity is related to moral stuff and the origins of this go back as far as plato but the middle ages make it into something Mm -hmm. of their own that's kind of different i feel like that's the conspiracy theory we need not flat earth stuff yeah the the mountain of purgatory (laughs) south pole is way cooler yeah um and I'll give you another map. So the Vikings, Viking geography, uh, if you go north, you get to Niflheim, which is just mm-hmm. infinite ice forever and ever and ever. And it gets colder and colder until there's nothing but ice. And if you go south, it gets warmer and warmer until you get to Muspelheim, the world of fire. And there's nothing but fire mm-hmm. forever and ever and ever, which is why the south is warm. Oh, wow. Uh, And if you go west, there's nothing but water forever and ever and ever, which is the ocean. And if you go east, everyone gets wealthier and wealthier and wealthier (laughs) until the world is made of gold. I didn't expect that. I thought it was going to be like nothing but land. But instead, it's just like lots of wealth. Well, it is it is indeed nothing but land, but it's also wealth. And yeah. from the perspective of a Viking, the farther south and east you go, right, you know, England is wealthier than you are. France is wealthier than that. Yeah. Mediterranean places are wealthier than that. Mm-hmm. The Middle East and the Byzantine Empire is wealthier than that. Egypt and China are wealthier than that. And they have a strong sense of this gradient of wealth going that way. Uh-huh. So it must keep going. Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> okay, I have. I guess I have two related questions, two slightly related questions. Mm-hmm. So one is, I know that there have always been societies that knew it was a globe. Have there never been any that thought it was flat? 
So that's my question, kind of just to kind of jump on that is that, so I understand like people, ancient people like figured out that the world was a globe, but if you just walk outside and you're not like studying it or trying to figure it out, wouldn't you um, just sort of assume it was flat or, you know, was that kind of more of a learned idea? And more significantly, we don't know what every society yeah. ever thought <laughs> because there are plenty for which we don't have records. And indeed, there are plenty who don't think of it a lot as a globe, but any society that has figured out navigation enough to do seafaring mm -hmm. has to have realized it's a globe or you can't navigate. Right. Because you have to realize that you're dealing with a sphere or your maps don't work and your and your navigation by the stars don't work. Yeah. So when we look at Vikings, when we look at medieval Europe, which had shipping, when we look at Polynesia, when we look at early China and Japan, these all definitely we know understand that there's a curved surface mm. going on, even though there are a variety. And I describe both Dante and the Vikings, sure, of course, very different from each other, mm. to give you the sense that there's a huge variety of understandings of the geography of the world. And a lot of them are hilarious and delightful, <laughs> but they do tend to understand that it's a curved surface because you figure that out as you try to navigate and map things. Mm -hmm. If it's like pro-Columbus propaganda, mm -hmm. do you know if it's more common in the U.S. to have the idea that people used to think it was flat than in places that don't care about Columbus? Yep. Wow. Much more common in the U.S. Do you know when the uh, the myth that he discovered that the earth was round started happening? That I don't know because that's you know, later than my period. Oh. <laughs> well, I guess yeah. one professor can't be expected to know everything. Oh, well. <laughs> well, in fact, a lot of being a professional scholar is actually about realizing how much we don't know, because, yeah. you know, often the difference between an amateur and professional historian, for example, is the difference between, you know, collecting what we know and racking up what we know. And we're like, we got it. You know, my job is, oh, my God, there's so much stuff we don't know. We don't know anything. Mm -hmm. How do I try to build a like tiny little ledge on the end of the enormous chasm and expand our, our knowledge of things by a tiny inch? And there are plenty of people who do that kind of history outside of the academic world who I consider professional historians every time a awesome you know YouTube costumer tries experiments to figure out things about the costs of things or how stuff was put together that's absolutely what I would consider you know serious professional history because mm. it's looking at what we don't know and adding to it mm. uh, and recognizing the fact that there's so much more that we don't know than that we do know I'll often mention an untranslated manuscript or sometimes get an email from someone who's heard me talk about a manuscript or heard that a manuscript exists and, and say, you know, where can I find this online? And I'll say, well, it hasn't been scanned or translated. Mm. And they'll say, there are historic manuscripts that haven't been <laughs> scanned and translated. I thought every single one was incredibly precious and, and translated and everywhere. And I'll say, well, you know, we have... 30 million pages of untranslated documents from the financing of the construction of Florence's Cathedral. Ooh, <laughs> wow. To give you a what? sense of the scale of how many untranslated documents exist. Wow. If you're talking about antiquity, yes, everything that we have, we work really hard on and, and spread around because we have very few things. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about even as early as 1300, there's a whole lot more that hasn't been looked at or read or scanned or anything than that there has. We've only looked at a tiny, tiny inch of this lost continent yeah. of exciting material that's waiting out there. But that's not how we're taught to think about it. Textbooks always give us this tidy summary as if we knew everything. Right. And it's like almost like psychologically, 
the impulse if you're not a professional is to say like, well, here's what we know about the past that was different and everything I don't know, I'm just going to assume was probably the same. But it's hard. Like it takes imagination, I guess, to Mm -hmm. find that. And then you think about like the sheer volume, like you said, of all the pages and all the knowledge out there that we haven't really even gotten to. Mm. Just statistically, a lot of that has got to be absolute nonsense. Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) you know, we don't know. Like, there were people probably just doing the, like, you know, 1400s equivalent of, like, Xeroxing their butt or something, you know. (laughs) How do we know what we need to go and get? There's so much work to do. Exactly. And and we have these amazing things. People's, you know, pornographic King Arthur fanfic (laughs) and stuff. No, that's very important. That's very important. You're like, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And and, and you're just like, okay, that was, that's really cool. Nobody's read. That let's let's do an article on that. Yeah, one. we had um another professor on before Lottie Reinbold who does medieval literature. We were asking her, you know, basically, do we have it all? Have we found everything? And she was telling us that even you know in the mid twentieth century, somebody was just like poking around in their attic and found a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we found a new work by Machiavelli a few months ago. Whoa! <gasps> How? Where? What? Uh, in the archives in Florence. Uh, But a lot of stuff is just there without a title and without a name on it. And what happened is that the scholar who happened to be looking through this particular folder of stuff happened to recognize the handwriting of Machiavelli's grandson. Oh. And then realized what it was and we identified it. It was a thing we knew of because people had mentioned it in letters, but we didn't have it. And that's what a lot of discovering a lost manuscript is, right? The Vatican has thousands of boxes right. of papers, you know, labeled box 37 mm. from the year 1410 that we don't know what they are. And we'll go through them. And a lot of them are somebody owed somebody else two gold coins for candle wax mm-hmm. for a cathedral for a year. But some of them are a lost work of Machiavelli or <laughs> somebody's pornographic uh, King Arthur fanfic, yeah. uh, which is also, by the way, in the Vatican. It's where it belongs. It's the Pope's private collection. <laughs> um, so you know, a huge amount of this is is that we have these literally millions of pages of manuscripts that as we go through them, we discover the amazing stuff that they are. Mm. And every time I'm at a conference where historians are just discussing, here's what I found, you know, that, what was it? There was a, a, a scholar friend who recently found a set of poems, which were a firsthand account of the Battle of Lepanto written by a African born enslaved person who rose through the ranks and earned liberty in Spain and then ended up going and fighting as an officer at the Battle of Lepanto and then wrote poetry about it. The only person in ever to have done that stuff. Only person. Totally unique perspective. Like, seriously. like Yeah, we have so many different accounts of the Battle of Lepanto, but that's such an unexpected and yeah, exciting one. Right. And the person had a long, complicated career and was a was a language tutor for a while, and as well as being a soldier. And mm. just such a fascinating life of the kind of person that doesn't appear in our history books very mm. much. And that was just in a box literally still in the palace of the the Colonna family, who are one of the models, in fact, for Romeo and Juliet. Oh. Uh, one of these big uh, Montesquieu Capulet-type feuding Italian families mm-hmm. who had uh, relatives who were at the Battle of Lepanto and so kept a bunch of random papers related to the Battle of Lepanto. I just feel like, uh, you know, it must be... 
I don't know if if people are actually like this, but now that I hear you talking about it, I'm imagining if this were myself, I feel like I would become obsessive and it would be hard not to want to just like keep looking and looking and looking because you just know that there's something amazing out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like do people feel that kind of like anxiety and that push forward? <laughs> well, yeah. So you're hungry for every minute that you can spend in the archives looking at things and realizing what they are. And then, mm-hmm. and then once you've realized what they are, thinking through, okay, I know what this is. Now, what should I do with it? What's the most useful thing? Should I translate it? Should I describe it? Mm. To whose attention should I bring this? Because mm. sometimes you'll discover a thing that's sort of orthogonal to what you're working on, but you'll realize that it's really important and interesting to somebody else who you know, Yeah. Uh, which is why it's so important for scholars to go to conferences and say, hey, mm-hmm. I found a bunch of papers of Galileo's tutor talking about colorblindness and someone else saying, I work on colorblindness. <laughs> wow. And then you'll connect the streams. So you've got to know all these connections. Yeah. Have you ever written a paper and then a few months later you discover something that would have been really good to include in that paper? <laughs> oh, uh, always. Always. <laughs> Every paper is like that, which is why you can publish follow-up papers. Oh. Even if there isn't a new discovery, when you publish a paper, then afterward other scholars talk to you about it and ask you questions. Mm. And after a few months or you know a couple of instances and conferences and so on of answering those questions, you realize this point I made in my paper, I can make it a lot better now. Mm. I can articulate much more powerfully what this information actually means. Mm. And I can articulate it in a way that makes it more accessible to weigh in on the major debates that are happening. Mm -hmm. Because when you first have your discovery, hey, Galileo's tutor was talking about colorblindness. You know, you don't know the historiography of colorblindness and that debates about colorblindness are related to a whole lot of discussions of the history of ideas of what is normal in sense perception, what is abnormal in sense perception, and also whether vision is the superior sense or whether other senses are co-equal with vision in importance. Mm. And scholars will ask you questions about that. And so often you'll publish something and then, you know, four years later, you'll publish another paper on exactly the same topic that just makes the points way better and connects them to the bigger issues that are involved. Mm -hmm. So even if there isn't new material, you still have new things to say (laughs) immediately after you've published it, as soon as you have those first conversations about the publication. And then you say, everybody who has a copy of that old paper, just send that on back to me. Send that back to me, please. Okay, put that in the fire. (laughs) Except that it's important for that to be out there because, well, and especially because then, you know, younger scholars get to look at, oh, neat, here is the old early version of this Mm -hmm. famous article. And then here is the advanced version. The fact that my work currently resembles the early version more than it resembles the late version is normal. And it shouldn't (laughs) give me imposter syndrome. It should tell me that I'm on the correct career trajectory for having the the sort of raw here's what I found version of the paper first mm. and then the and here is how this weighs in on major debates and why these three people are just wrong and these three <laughs> yeah. people are right version that comes later when you've had a chance to engage. It makes me really appreciate librarians because yes. I think a lot of people outside of that realm think about oh being a librarian is just so cute you know you wear sweaters and you tell people to shush and things like this but like it's a huge response thinking about like, what information do we save? What do we not save? How do we save it? How do we organize it? How do we make it accessible? How do we label it? Where do we put it? 
just thinking about it is giving me terrible anxiety. I don't think I would be good at a historian <laughs> or librarian. <laughs> I can't clean out my own stuff drawer. I mean, I don't know what I need to keep or not. I led a class through team curating a museum exhibit in our library's exhibit space of books related to the history of censorship. Mm. And so we were displaying a lot of censored books, but also a lot of propagandistic books. In the course of that, we discovered um, a number of books that were in the library that were what we might call very harmful propaganda. So some of these are, you know, Holocaust denialist types of books or white supremacist histories. Some of them were books from what's called the Lost Cause Movement, which Mm -hmm. is a effort to defend the American South and claim that slavery was a positive institution and not a negative institution. And some of them were things like Baudelaire's Shakespeare. So Shakespeare, where all of the naughty bits, like the scene where Juliet is excited to have sex with Romeo, were replaced with non-body <laughs> verses. You know, a, a Baudelaire Shakespeare doesn't necessarily tell you that it's Baudelaireized. Mm. Or, you know, older translations of Ovid or Catullus, which will censor the naughty bits, look just like any other translation of Catullus. And if they're just in the classics section of the library and you go in there to get a Catullus, you have no way of telling which is the censored version and which is the real version. Wow. Uh, and so we had wonderful discussions with the librarians of how do you label this? Uh, many libraries actually have a section for what's called spurious knowledge, which ah. is where you put things like white supremacy histories uh, and people go there and know the the stuff that is in here is considered to be false information and you should be studying it as propagandistic false information because wow. you're interested in studying the history of white supremacy or the history of Holocaust denial right. to learn about them as phenomena so that you don't conflate them with what we consider to be still authoritative histories. Hmm. We need that spurious knowledge in research collections, mm-hmm. at least. And this is also another thing librarians get to decide is like, what is my library for? Because if you're the public librarian of a medium-sized town, you don't need to keep the white supremacist history (laughs) uh, or the lost cause history of the American South, because who is going to come to your library? It's high school students who are doing research projects. Mm. If they need that because they're researching white supremacy, they can interlibrary loan it. It's not something that makes sense to take up shelf space in your comparatively small library that serves a comparatively small community. But it absolutely should be in a research library so that people can interlibrary loan it. And so that people can, like my wonderful colleague, Kathleen Ballou, who is a historian of white supremacy, so that she can have access to those materials to talk about this phenomenon how did it develop? What has made it stronger and weaker over time? What mm-hmm. are the cultural phenomena that have fed it? How can we deal with it? Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I don't think I've ever seen a spurious knowledge section. <laughs> like I've been to many research libraries, but I, I was always going, you know, mm-hmm. specifically to look at something. So I, I don't think I've ever gone and just kind of wandered around and looked at the section names. It's always in a separate room with like a curtain. It's like curtained off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a padlock. <laughs> like what is it in Harry Potter? There's like a forbidden room or something. <laughs> I was thinking like the adult video section at a movie rental place. <laughs> There's the difference between Jackie and Theo. <laughs> there's like a velvet curtain and there's the spurious knowledge section it says VIP yeah, yeah. <laughs> hi everyone this is Theo producer of the podcast you're currently listening to called Fire the Canon thank you so much for listening if you like what you're hearing and you'd like to support our podcast check us out on patreon.com slash fire the canon 
On our Patreon, you can find multiple rewards tiers. For just $3 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. For $5 a month, you also get a Fire the Cannon sticker. And the more you give, the better the prizes get. So check it out. It's www.patreon.com slash fire the cannon. And cannon is spelled C-A-N-O-N. All right, now back to the episode. Gosh, yeah, still so many questions. But so, I mean, we I think Rachel's idea of what we would talk about in terms of Romeo and Juliet is anything you can think of that the average reader wouldn't pick up on, you know, that's like strange or weird about, you know, something in that time period. Well, so the, the place I want to jump in, and this is where historical context is really helpful, is Juliet's father's reaction when she doesn't want to marry County Paris. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a very extreme reaction. And that scene very much to us, we think about this as a, you know, abusive and controlling father. We empathize with Juliet very strongly in that scene. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of modern corollaries where we can think about a controlling and and overbearing Mm -hmm. parent and, and understand that. But within the context of the period, the whole meaning of that sequence and her refusal is very different. Hmm. And to remind listeners from the last episode, this would have been like the point in the play where he stops treating Juliet as his daughter, as a child. And as soon as she said she's not going to marry the guy he wants her to, he's like, get out of my house. I never want to know you again. Right? Yeah. He's, I'm going to disown you. I'm going to kick you out uh, if you don't marry County Paris. I never look. I never want to see your face again. Basically, if you don't marry him in two days, uh, and gives this very cruel ultimatum that we find very uncomfortable. But if we remember, the prologue of Romeo and Juliet is almost misleading because it says two houses both alike in dignity in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. Hmm. But in fact, it's three houses, two alike in dignity and one above, because the family, the third family that's involved in this is the family of the Prince of Verona Mm. and County Paris, who is his kinsman. And they appear a number of times. And that's the key to something that all of Shakespeare's viewers would understand immediately, which is the politics behind that arrangement. Mm. So the Montagues and Capulets are two powerful families within this city-state, but they aren't the ruler. There is a ruling family. And they've been having a feud. And this is one of these very entrenched, multi-generational Italian feuds, which characterized Italy in this period and which were very well known in other parts of Europe and that Shakespeare's readers are familiar with. You've probably heard of the Guelphs and Ghibellines, which is the largest and longest ongoing version of a big Italian feud. Mm -hmm. And that's a many families feud where families that are allied with each other end up making further allies and you get these big networks that turn into large factions. But there were also smaller family-on-family feuds. So we can zoom in on Rome, for example, where there was the Orsini family and the Colonna family. And these are two powerful Roman families who have territory in different sections of the city and were rivals. You can kind of think like the American version would be like the Hatfield-McCoys or something, right? Like that's something a lot of people might to know. some extent, yeah. Yeah. Um, but these are also going to be business rivals. So imagine the Hatfields and McCoys, where one of them owns Coke and the other one owns Pepsi. Uh oh. <laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs> but also think of that opening scene where we have the two groups of thugs on the street, and they're you know starting stuff with each other, mm-hmm. because the period has a patronage system in which there isn't a normal social safety net in this period, right? 
one thing that is always an informative question to ask of any time and place in history is, what has to go wrong for you to die in a gutter? Mm -hmm. You know, in the U.S., what has to go wrong for you to die in the gutter is that there are a bunch of different social safety deaths that have to not catch you. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of circumstances in which they don't, right? But there are homeless shelters that have to fail. There's social security that has to fail. There are healthcare systems that have to fail. There's, you know, what police are actually theoretically supposed to be doing, which is looking for people who are in trouble and helping them. All of those things have to conspire to fail. Their family support networks have to fail. A bunch of different things have to fail for that to happen. How many levels of nets are there? Right. Yeah. And what catches you if you if you don't end up dying in a gutter? And in the period, the answer to that really is patronage networks. There is a powerful family, and then there are lesser families that work for that powerful family and that keep working for that powerful family over multiple generations. And this means the powerful family employs the lesser family. Mm. So the powerful family might be, you know, the big bankers who run the banks and are very rich. The lesser family might be carpenters or weavers or uh, farmers who always sell their goods to that larger family. Or, you know, the carpenter is the carpenter that that family calls on to do jobs when that family needs a carpenter. And that big family owns dozens of houses, right? And it's a large extended family network. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that if you're from the lesser family and you're in trouble, right? Your son got drunk and punched a dude in a bar brawl and the dude died and your son is in trouble with the law. That's the moment that you write a letter and you say, you know, dear patron family, please help me. My son is in trouble with the law. I think he might be executed. Remember that I built the pews for your family <laughs> chapel and my father built the roof beams for your summer house and my grandfather built this, you know, so please help me. And that's when the wealthy family who inevitably have lawyers and judges and so on, not only in their family, but in their pocket, will write an important letter that says, please let this person off. And we saw that in Cyrano de Bergerac too. Like there's this guy who has a powerful patron. You don't want to mess with him. Exactly. Uh, and there's a very telling scene actually in Richard III where Edward is upset because the Duke of Clarence has just been executed. And a, a man comes in and kneels before the king and says, you know, my servant is in trouble. He's, you know, killed a guy and he's getting in trouble with the law and I'm not going to rise from my kneeling position, my sovereign, until you agree to pardon the man. Mm. And the king, you know, eventually does so. And the guy is guilty, right? Mm. <laughs> the guy did kill the dude. <laughs> but, you know, patronage network, this is a friend of the king, therefore you got to pardon his servant, even though he's actually guilty of the murder. Mm. The other side of that is, so that's what the lesser family gets from the upper family. And you get steady employment and you also get taken care of in emergencies. And this is where the dying in a gutter part comes in, right? Because, you know, let's imagine that you have an accident and you lose your arm and you can no longer do your work. Your patron will take care of you. And let's imagine you get killed. Your patron will take care of your widow and your orphans. It's almost like insurance. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so to give a concrete example, um, and this is the with the Medici patronage network, there's a, a poet, well-known from the Renaissance, called Poliziano, uh, one of the first people to do a beautiful verse translation of Homer. But when he was a little kid, his dad was a bank branch manager who worked for the Medici. Mm -hmm. And his dad was killed in a riot. And so his mom sent him to Florence you know, with his little backpack as, you know, not yet 12, <laughs> with a letter saying, you know, my dad worked for you. He died in a riot. And the Medici see the kid, take the letter, take him in, educate him, raise him, 
uh, in his case, raised him as a Greek scholar because he had a head for languages. He became a major and prestigious poet and tutor to the Medici family kids. Mm. But if instead of a head for languages, he'd had like a talent for fencing, he probably would have been raised to be one of their soldiers. You take care of the people under you. So when we think of that opening scene of Romeo and Juliet and those two groups of goons who are biting their thumb at me, sir, <laughs> do blah, blah, blah. Those are the two sets of people who are in the patronage network for those two families. If the Capulets rise, the Capulet dudes will all get rich. Mm-hmm. And if the Montagues rise, the Montague dudes will all get rich. Mm-hmm. And the converse, the what do the, you know, so I've covered what the weaker family gets from the powerful family. What does the powerful family get from the weaker family? So they get steady employment, right? They get people who will work for them. Mm -hmm. But they also get the fact that because they're the social safety net for this, the family knows that they depend on the survival and prospering of that wealthy family and are willing to take risks for them Mm -hmm. so that when there needs to be a riot, when you need street violence, when, you know, Romeo is in trouble in the streets and needs goons to back him up, all of those families, those carpenters and weavers, et cetera, who work for the Montagues, Mm -hmm. they will step in and they will help. And to give the real example, in the case of Lorenzo de' Medici and Poliziano, the poet who I mentioned, when during the Pazzi conspiracy, assassins try to kill Lorenzo de' Medici, Poliziano literally jumps in the way between the assassin and Lorenzo and lets Lorenzo live, risking his own life. Because Lorenzo saves him, he saves him. Okay, so it's much, much more than sports rivalries. That's the comparison I think that a lot of high school teachers will will sometimes use, which is it's like more relevant. Like it doesn't take as long to explain. Yeah. But it's not really deep enough. I mean, like I liked watching the basketball games like anybody else, but I'm not about to jump in front of somebody on the court and defend them. Like, you know, yeah. you can handle it. Exactly. But if somebody is the person who when your father died and you were left impoverished, took care of your widowed mother, took care of you, Mm -hmm. and is taking care of your friends, you are going to jump in the way of the assassin when that happens. We we had even mentioned that in in the very beginning is like, look, even the servants are like yelling at each other. They're not even in the family. So was that, you think, like an actually like sincerely held belief they had? Right. You know, it's it's, they're they're good. They're doing this out of their own. Nobody from the family is there to see them do this. Right. No, they're doing this from loyalty mm-hmm. and, and you know, dedication to this and remembering that their fathers and their grandfathers were part of this faction and also that their fathers and grandfathers were sometimes killed by the rival faction. Mm-hmm. Because when violence does happen, it'll re- entrench these rivalries. Yeah. Because, you know, if your great uncle was killed by that guy's grandfather, mm-hmm. you're going to remember that. <laughs> and this is how rivalries like the Gulfs and Ghibellines sometimes referred to as the first hundred years war oh. to mm-hmm. get get you a sense of the scale of this violence and how entrenched it can be and how long it could go on. Yeah. So that, you know, genuine blood in the streets became a very common thing and the ferocity of these rivalries, which then also get entangled with government. Mm-hmm. And this is where the these are three houses, two alike in dignity and one above, becomes important because here are two houses and they're rivals. Yeah. But they're also competing for positions in government. Mm -hmm. They're competing for judgeships. They're competing to be hired to be the general to oversee the armies of the prince. 
They're competing for things. And above all, the most solid victory you can possibly have in this rivalry and the one thing that will guarantee your supremacy over the other side is a marriage alliance with the ruling family. Okay. If you marry the ruling family, you get that favor forever. Right. The other guys are out of power. Okay, so that's where the Paris and Juliet thing becomes very serious for them. Exactly. And so Shakespeare's audience understood that if Juliet's father, who is in a very precarious situation because he doesn't have any sons, right. you know, he doesn't have any sons of his own. He just has the one daughter. That family is in danger of dying out. You know, hopefully they have cousins like Tybalt to be the heir because they don't have an heir. Mm -hmm. But if he has arranged a marriage alliance between Juliet and a kinsman of the ruler, mm -hmm. he's been working on that for a decade. He's been working on that since he had a daughter. And he's been laying the groundwork and doing favors for the Duke and calling in favors and mm -hmm. having parties and courting this. This kind of major, major marriage alliance is going to have been years in the planning. And if Juliet marries County Paris... The Capulets win forever, and the Montagues are dead. So, so everybody would have known that, right? And everybody watching knows yeah. this. And so, from you know, if we zoom into the mind of Juliet's dad for a second, here he's been working since this girl was born <laughs> to make the marriage alliance that will finally mean that their family wins, their rivals go down, and they are secure in their position forever. Yeah. And he walks in there, and she says, "I don't want to marry the boy." You know, he has put as much effort into this as, you know, the U.S. president would put into a nuclear weapons deal with Iran. Mm -hmm. Even longer, because a president can't be around for 14 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then here is this 14-year-old girl saying, but daddy, I don't want to marry that man. Yeah. And you can see why he flips out. And it will be utterly transparent to Shakespeare's audiences why he flips out and why this is one of these situations where the idea that romance could triumph and love could triumph is ferociously at odds with the political realities of what it means to get married in an era in which marriage alliances are 100% about politics. Yeah. And that's why, like, when someone like Tybalt or Mercutio does get killed, like, obviously, you know, these days we can empathize with it in that, well, nobody wants their relative to be killed, right? But for them, it's like, that was a, that was a huge investment in the family's future now that's gone, you know? It's a little bit different. Yeah, you know, we, we see no other young male Capulets. Yeah. So Tybalt may well have been the only heir, in which case the Capulet name is going to end. Mm -hmm. But if Juliet marries County Paris, then at least the Capulet blood and Capulet fortune will be encompassed into the ruling families and continue in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps there are other unnamed male cousins. Mm. But, you know, this is a, a, a family in great precariousness for lack of male heirs that has just scored this major political coup, the marriage with a count who outranks both of these families. He has a title. They don't. They're wealthy and they're powerful, but they're not as powerful as the family of the, of the prince who has that speech about how he can't stop them feuding mm -hmm. and how it's, you know, making Verona bleed and he wants to stop them feuding, but they're too powerful and he just can't. But, you know, he can. He's gonna, he's gonna <laughs> marry one of them yeah. and then the other one will be crushed. You know, so a road to peace mm. where peace is bloody, which is to say the massacre and end of the Montague family, but nonetheless peace okay. is there within that marriage. And so when she objects to it, 
it means something really different for Shakespeare's audience from what it means to us. In the scene where Paris and Juliet's father are discussing the arrangement and Paris is saying, you know, why can't I marry her now? And Juliet's father is saying she's only 13. Mm -hmm. What is that supposed to indicate about, because that's like not a strategic thing to be saying, right? That you should wait, but it's... And then he changes his mind. Yeah. Very reasonably... His reluctance may well be if she gets pregnant that young, the chances of her dying in childbed with the first kid are high. Ah. And if she doesn't produce, you know, half Capulet, half the prince's family mm-hmm. heirs, if she just dies, then he loses the dowry, he loses all of his efforts. Mm. And now County Paris needs a new bride. Maybe the next one will be a Montague. Right. You know, they, they risk losing everything if she doesn't survive long enough to produce sons. And that's why Paris says, oh, other people have been mothers younger than her, so it's no big deal. Exactly. I guess I don't understand in that case then why he would be like, okay, never mind. Let's cheer her up by making her get married right away without talking to her. Is it to cheer her up? or Well, because he realizes that it's advantageous and you kind of don't want to wait. If the count and kinsman of the prince is saying, no, 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 I want this marriage now, the risk is that if you say no, he'll find a different match. Or so, like, they just lost Tybalt. They just lost what is maybe their last male heir. We better hurry up and get this done. And risk her dying in childbirth. Right. And to give you some numbers, while it is the case that sometimes girls in the period would marry as young as 13 or very rarely 12, very rarely, it was still much more common for marriages to happen between around 16 and 18. Okay. So my other question is that So he's been putting all of this effort in for, you know, almost 14 years. You compared it to like a nuclear arms deal or something. Mm -hmm. Would it have been so unthinkable for him to just say, hey, this whole thing is more likely to go according to plan if I just try and pick someone that my daughter likes? And we see that like her mother and the nurse are saying, well, take a look at him, see if you could love him. But clearly she can't say no. So, you know, wouldn't his investment have been better placed if he had sought her input. Well, but I mean, the the likelihood is that there isn't another male kinsman of the prince available at the right age. Okay. Particularly because if we're in Verona and it's the Renaissance, Italy is a whole bunch of city-states. Mm. When you're in that situation, when the prince is thinking about what marriage alliances to make, he can make local marriage alliances with local powerful families, which will give him wealth and will give him some internal stability, but won't help him on the larger chessboard of city-states being rivals with other city-states. Mm-hmm. Or he can make marriage alliances with the ruling families of other city-states, right? He's the Prince of Verona. He can make a marriage alliance with the Ducal family of Ferrara mm-hmm. or with the Ducal family of Milan or with the the ruling family of Bologna, or with a very prominent Venetian family. And those marriage alliances give him different help. Those marriage alliances give him friends with armies who, if Verona is attacked by an army, will send their army to help him in return for him promising to help his, send his army to help them mm-hmm. in other situations. Also, marrying powerful families from other city-states gives him a better chance at having married a family that has other major power in their hand. For example, a cardinal at the papal court. Because mm. the Montagues and Capulets are not powerful enough that they're going to have 
a cardinal at the papal court. But if the Prince of Verona marries the de Estes of Ferrara, they almost always have a cardinal at the papal court, which is a much more important political advantage in a lot of ways than others. Mm -hmm. So a good way to think about it is that the Montagues and Capulets are playing, you know, deadly chess with each other on the scale of the Verona board. Mm -hmm. But the prince is playing on the Italy board, not on the Verona board. And so if he's got a son, he's probably marrying that son to a princess from another city. Mm -hmm. And if he has a second son or second male kinsman, that one is going into the church. Okay. So it's only like eligible male kinsman number three (laughs) who would even consider marrying Juliet Mm -hmm. because he's got to use those other two to make his Italy scale alliance and his church scale alliance. So it's very likely that this is the only or one of very few male kinsmen of the prince that is available. It's him or you don't get this is the very likely answer. So he doesn't have like a dozen nephews. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, a few of them did, but it's pretty rare. Or even if there were more when she was growing up and maybe she took a liking to one or the other, you don't know that that person's going to survive to adulthood. You know, you might have to change things. Exactly. They might get killed in a war. They might contract any number of deadly diseases. And indeed, when we think about the efforts that Lord Capulet was investing into Juliet's marriage, he probably only started working seriously on it when she turned five or so, because that's when it's likely she's going to live. <laughs> only at five. <laughs> and to, to give you a real sense of that, so, you know, Renaissance Florence, for example, though other cities had this too, had what's called the dowry fund. Because mm. when you have a daughter and you want her to marry, she has to have a pot of cash to be her dowry. Mm-hmm. And dowries work differently in different places. But the way to think of it is that the dowry is the down payment for her husband having a business, mm. right? So if she's marrying somebody who's trained to be a woodworker, her dowry is the starting capital for him to start a woodworking business. It's investment capital for the couple. On the case of a poorer couple, it might be this is what's furnishing the home and giving the person the tools that they'll work with as a day laborer. For a wealthier couple, it'll be, you know, this is the equivalent of the $100,000 we're investing in materials for our silk trading business. Mm. But it's a wad of cash that she needs to have to establish the couple in economic self-sufficiency. When you have a daughter, you can invest money in the dowry fund. And it's like putting money in the stock market, sort of, or a safer bet, really. It's it's more like putting money in government bonds. Mm-hmm. And the way the dowry fund works is you have a daughter, you put a certain amount of money in the fund. If she lives to marry, you get more money out, okay. <laughs> much more than you put in. Where does the other money come from? Dead daughters. <laughs> it comes from the girls who died. Oh, God. Right. Because enough of them will die that this sort of adds up to be the insurance policy for the ones who live. This does sound like someone explaining the concept of a very complicated board game. And (laughs) so I listened to your appearance on another podcast, um, which was Mm. uh, You Are Not So Smart, I think it was called. Uh, And you had talked about your, your class that you do at the University of Chicago, where you have the students play this very complicated game. And of course, you talked about it on that podcast, so you don't have to go into detail. But here, it sounds like, do you think of a lot of things through history as game-like? Or am I just maybe projecting that onto you? (laughs) Yeah, only particular things. But indeed, what we're talking about with the 
marriage alliances and the the multi-sphere calculations of are we calculating these marriages based on this city, based on this city and its neighbors, based on all of Italy or based on the all of Europe plus the Mediterranean map are things that I explore and represent in that game. Okay. Uh, and one very important calculation that families, powerful families like the Montagues and Capulets or like the Orsini and Colonna, which are much of what they're modeled on, or like the Medici family, which is another similar family, is on what scale to make your marriages and how many of your marriages to have be local and how many of your marriages to have be beyond your city. And marrying beyond your city is one of the sort of big signs of ambition Mm. to the degree that when the Medici family made their first major marriage beyond Florence, when Piero de' Medici had his son Lorenzo marry an Orsini girl from Rome, from an important Roman family instead of a Florentine family, We have a famous quote from one of their political rivals saying, when you don't think you need to marry your neighbors anymore, it means you think you rule them. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And that decision on the Medici's part was one of the things that people cited as drumming up some of the resentment that led to the eventual assassination attempt and effort to overthrow uh, and destroy the oh. family. Getting too big for their britches. Right. The perception <laughs> that they were acting like rulers instead of acting like peers. Yeah. It's that human impulse to want to kill your neighbor if they won't marry you. I get it. It's relatable. <laughs> and so, for example, when we look at how Lorenzo marries his kids, Lorenzo had mm. six kids, I think it was, or it might have been seven. He had a lot. And his eldest son and eldest daughter, he makes marriages to Rome, Mm -hmm. which gain him major political advantages in Rome and are how he managed to get his second son made a cardinal. But all of his other kids' marriages are to powerful Florentine families. He knew how to do it. <laughs> right. And and that is what we are probably seeing our Prince of Verona doing. You know, Tybalt is not his heir. Paris. Or, sorry, not Tybalt. Uh, County Paris. Paris is not his heir. It's a relative. It's a cousin. Mm-hmm. His heir is almost certainly marrying beyond Verona. Mm. Paris <laughs> is, is available to marry Juliet and be that local marriage alliance that will solidify his rule over the city, get him the economic and political support of all of those Capulet goons that we saw biting their thumbs at the beginning, they are now going to be willing to sign up Mm. for his army. And if there's an attempted coup, right, they're going to take up their pitchforks and fire on his side, not against. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember that in a city state, Right. When your country has a population of 80,000, the fact that a wealthy family can muster a thousand men can make the difference between the current ruler enduring a coup Mm -hmm. attempt Mm -hmm. and falling in a coup attempt. Right. Those goons you see at the beginning are one of the assets that the prince wants in making that marriage alliance. It's easy for us to think of. You know, the government, it can't be overthrown by random street goons who are sitting here biting their thumbs at each other. Mm-hmm. But when we're on the scale of a city-state, they actually can. Interesting. So, and we had talked about, you know, what could Juliet have done? Like, let's say if there was some way to get this not to happen, you know, the plan was marry Romeo in secret, 
tell her family later. Friar Lawrence is hoping this is going to end the feud. I was wondering why she didn't tell her parents, I can't marry Paris because I'm already married. But I see now, I mean, her mom already threatened to have Romeo assassinated. I imagine, is that what they would have done if she said, I'm already married? They just kill him, so she's free? It seems like they would be upset with her, but doesn't that seem like that would be an advantageous thing? Like... Now you've got these two powerful families that could be aligned. So just remember that the normal thing in the period to do if you find out that the member of that one of your women has run off with another family is to lay siege to their house until you can break in and kill her. Because your family honor is not satisfied while she is still alive, whether or not her flight was voluntary. So Friar Lawrence's idea of this ending the feud seems like it was just misguided. So the answer is it's a really, really high risk method. And I've spent a lot of time like, what would I don't I like Friar Lawrence. I'm was... just going to say that. I, I like he made him. a lot of mistakes <laughs> and he played with fire and he killed two kids and God. God. He's cute. <laughs> He's cute. We like him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The what would I have done if I, if I was in Romeo and Juliet? And there's a couple answers to that. So one is, I don't know if you know about Ryan North's amazingly delightful Romeo and or Juliet choose your own adventure book, right? Oh, yes. Which makes the point (laughs) of how incredibly many opportunities to have a better ending than this there were (laughs) and how absolutely every possible choice you make except for exactly what happens in the thing has a happy ending. Yeah. But, you know, so if I were thinking seriously in the period of is am, am I really there and is this really happening? The best solution that I can think of would be Fire Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet, or maybe just Fire Lawrence and Romeo, going directly to the prince. Oh, skip the Capulets, go straight to the prince. Okay. Skip the Capulets, skip the Montagues. They're just going to kill each other. Okay. Uh, go straight to the prince and say, you know, my lord, our families have been having this feud and causing mm. terrible violence in the city for ages, and it's been filling the streets of your city with blood. And Juliet and I have fallen in love with each other and rashly, I apologize, made a secret marriage. We would love for this to bring peace between our families. Can you please protect us? Mm. And can you please force our families to consent to this? Mm. Because either family is just going to kill Juliet realistically (laughs) or kill both of them if they find out that this has happened. But the prince has the authority to go to the two families and say, okay, I'm going to banish you from the city if you don't accept this. You're merging. Do it. Wow. And with the backing of the prince, that kind of thing can happen. And there were instances, for example, in feuds like this, like the Orsini-Colonna feuds, where the Pope trying to calm things down would call in both families and say, okay, you're making a marriage alliance. Do it. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay, And now stop murdering each other or I will banish you from the city. And then a generation would go by and they would start murdering each other again. Because inevitably that that feud just kept going and going and going. I'm curious. I mean, would it be possible if enough powerful families in Verona got connected through marriage that it would risk the prince's power. Indeed, it can, especially if they get backing from outside. Mm. Uh, And remember that this is a period during which these small Italian city-states had very frequent coups. Mm -hmm. And when you look at somewhere like Florence or you look at somewhere like Bologna or Milan, Bologna is a great example, which had like 11 regime changes within one lifespan. 
Some of which are this person and then he gets kicked out and then he's back and then he gets kicked out and then it's a republic for five minutes and then another person conquers it. Yeah. All of them coming with bloodshed. And when we remember Machiavelli's Prince and it's full of all of this advice of how to stay in power, one of Mm. the things that people don't remind us of enough is that the reason he's writing this is he has seen multiple regime changes in not only his city, but others. And every time thousands of people died in the streets, literally ran with blood. And Machiavelli's conclusion is civil war is worse than a meh prince or even a somewhat cruel prince. Wow. Because the number of people he has seen die in a civil war have been larger than the number of people he has seen be killed even by Cesare Borgia. Right. Wow. Uh, wow. And so his advice is stay in power because even if you're kind of tyrannical, the city will suffer more from a revolution and a civil war and blood in the streets. And the probability of that making foreign invaders realize that your country is ripe for the conquest and then conquering you being worse than just living with a somewhat cruel ruler. So now I'm imagining all the head lice on Rachel's head stand up and say, look. On my head? It's us or you can wear poison on your head forever and probably damage yourself. You might just want to stick with the head lice, you know, full circle. Um, So I guess my other question was when I'm reading it, I'm thinking when Juliet finds out Romeo, he's banished. Why doesn't she run off with him and just not tell anyone? Would her family realize she had run off with him? Couldn't she just disappear and just don't say where she's going? And if she goes to another city, how are they going to know? He can say, this is some girl I found. We really want the eagles to just swoop in and take them to Mordor. And like, we want to fix this. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, as the heir, if she disappears, all of the force of the Capulets are going to be hunting for her and hunting for scapegoats. Yeah. Let's imagine that she can disappear in a manner in which she isn't traceable and they can't find her. Mm -hmm. There will be bloodshed all over Verona as people suspect each other and blame each other. Okay. So faking her own death is a really good idea. (laughs) Because nobody's going to be the culprit. It's not as good as an idea as, you know, I I gave you my, if this is real life. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The real life, this is the Renaissance solution is go to the prince. The Shakespeare solution is dresses up as a boy. Because if somebody dresses up as a boy, everything is always fine. If this was a comedy, yeah. (laughs) From that point on, we're in a comedy. Everything is going to be good, right? You know. So really, she just needed to dress up as a boy, and everything would have been fine. It didn't even matter what she did. You know, it just solved things. Um, But you know, another good thing she could have done would have been to say, you know, I'm going to get ready for my marriage by spending a month in a nunnery to like purify myself, and and she can be not seen by anybody in a nunnery right? and then run away and nobody will notice that she's gone for a month because she's pretending that she's in the nunnery as long as she gets some friendly, cunning nuns to help cover her tracks. Did did young girls in that time period ever just say like, uh, I'm going to go to the nunnery for about nine months. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Don't anybody (laughs) come looking for me. I'll see you later. Yeah, that would happen. But, you know, the family is going to know. And it's important for us to remember that, like, nuns are still humans who are still, like, doing stuff. Like, have relatives outside that they talk to. Relatives and political (laughs) lives. Yeah. Yeah. There's a brilliant book, which all of you, I'm sure, would love, which is called A Corresponding Renaissance. And it's a collection of 52 letters by 52 different Renaissance women. 
about all sorts of different things. And it's this really great, and each of them has a mini biography of the person. And it's this amazing sample of how many amazing different things Renaissance women were doing because some of them were running businesses and some of them were doing science experiments and some of them Mm. were breaking new frontiers in theology and some of them were prostitutes complaining about their boyfriends not having big enough penises and some (laughs) of them were nuns meddling in politics and some of them were, were nuns obsessed with theology and some of them were women worrying about their arranged marriages and some of them were women being excited about their arranged marriages. And some of them were women giving political advice to their dad, who's the Pope. And it's just great. Their dad, the Pope. Yeah, Lucrezia Borgia. There's a Lucrezia Borgia letter in there. (laughs) And boy, was she on top of politics when she was 14. Like, that's another thing that (laughs) we have to remember is that a girl like Juliet would have had an education that is preparing her to enter politics around this age. Mm. And she's being prepared to be basically the... Not CEO, but CFO of a major corporation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or COO, maybe, right? Kind of Siobhan from Succession. Right, because if, if her <laughs> husband is a major, you know, head of a bank or something, she's the person in charge of personnel, hiring and firing, purchasing goods, looking into and p- purchasing property. Raising the next CEO, probably. <laughs> Raising the next CEO. Well, actually, not very much. She's going to have staff for that. Mm-hmm. Hiring the people to do that. <laughs> yeah. But hiring the people who do that, she's going to be receiving and sending letters to and from political contacts all over Europe. But, you know, thinking of her as she's about to be second in command of a giant global business like Pepsi is a good way to think of what Juliet has been raised for. Mm-hmm. And so we have this amazing letter of Lucrezia Borgia, age 14, where she's writing from having just made a marriage alliance with Milan. And she's writing to her dad, the Pope. And she's like, okay, you know, these are the names of the political groups that they've recruited for this side. And the King of France has sent stuff that is this. And these people have sent this much money to these people, which means that this faction is allying with that faction. And so I think it's very important for our family to ally with this faction against that faction. And I'll send you more reconnaissance when I get... And she's 14. Wow. But she is (laughs) on top of this because she's been trained for this type of political work the whole time. Hmm. And that is the education that the real Juliet would have. Now, Shakespeare's Juliet doesn't feel like she has that type of political education. Right. She feels much more like a girl that Shakespeare might know, Mm -hmm. but being thrust into this imagined position because we are working with Shakespeare projecting characters realistic to him onto this kind of circumstance. Mm-hmm. You know, but the real Juliet would have been memorizing and reciting the names of the coats of arms of dozens of different families so that she can recognize their knights from a distance when she was eight. Wow. She's on top of this kind of stuff. She would also have Latin and Greek and Plato and all of that, but she would be really on top of mathematics, facts and figures, uh, economic investments. And when we read the letters of a figure like Alessandra Strozzi, she's really on top of this kind of stuff because she is a business manager. Mm-hmm. When Romeo is banished, and the normal thing to do when a male associate with ban is banished is you're a powerful woman, you start using your political clout. That's when Juliet should ask for an audience with the prince and go to him and say, hey, you know, the secret marriage exists. If you recall Romeo, uh, this can happen. <laughs> Remember that guy? Remember how hot he was? <laughs> well, because banishment wasn't wasn't forever. Banishment was very common in the period and banishment was much more like a parole period of Mm -hmm. I'm banishing this person if this family behaves themselves Mm -hmm. and there are no Montague started, you know, street violence for a while. Mm -hmm. And he, while in other cities, 
you know, writes to me frequently about how loyal he is and sends me political advice and works as a sort of a spy or agent keeping an eye on those other places and lets me, the prince, know what's happening and proves himself useful and loyal, then I will recall him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that type of banishment was a strategic deal kind of between the powerful family and the lesser family in which demonstrations of loyalty would result in that person being recalled. Mm. And Juliet, had she been less wildly in love, (laughs) should have understood that, right? Understood that if they work as a team, his banishment should be able to be overturned. But she's in the middle of panicking about the County Paris marriage and also being wildly full of hormones, as we would put it. And the it. adults in her life are leading her astray, her nurse and Friar yes. Lawrence, like I said. Yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> throughout the story, when you jump in at different parts, it always seems like there's some, like multiple better options. Like anywhere you go into Romeo and Juliet, it's not like yep. a boulder rolling downhill where you can't stop it. It's like, no, you could stop at any point. So Ada, I don't know if you're familiar with this, There's a very popular light novel anime manga called My Next Life as Villainous, All Roads Lead to Doom. Yes. (laughs) Jackie and Theo, the premise of this story is a girl in modern day Japan is playing a video game. And in the video game, it's basically like an interactive book. So she's playing as the main character and the main character has a love rival who is a villainous. And at the end of the game, depending on what the heroine does... The villainous either gets killed or exiled. So this teenage girl in Japan, she gets hit by a car. She wakes up and finds out that she's the villainous from the video game, but as a little kid. And she thinks, I have, you know, 10 years to live my life differently so I don't get killed or exiled. (laughs) But then there's a Mm spinoff that's the same thing happens, but she wakes up in the villainous's body, but it's like three months before the end of the game. Mm -hmm. So she has to do other things differently. That's intriguing because I think about what I would do if I were just put back in times, you know, in in my life and just be like, (laughs) what would I do if I was like in 2018 right now? Or like, what would I do if it was 2007? Knowing what well, I and know it's now. one of the neat things that Shakespeare plays with in his different tragedies, because you know what you've correctly identified is that there are there are tragedies like Romeo and Juliet where it feels like at any moment it could have been okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> at any moment something could have gone differently and everything would have been fine, and you can you can you know almost up until the last breath at the very end mm-hmm. it could be okay. And there are other ones where it feels like this is rolling inevitably mm-hmm. toward destruction and nothing can stop it. Everything is just sort of in this loop of doom. Mm-hmm. I guess Titus Andronicus is more in that structure where once evil gets installed in positions of power, you're just watching good get destroyed and get more destroyed and get more destroyed. And you know that it's just going to continue. Mm-hmm. Richard III also has a lot of providential kind of structure feelings to it, where you're just watching mistake and terrible thing happen and, and it unroll with this kind of sense of karma of all of these people are, are traitors and profiteers off of the death of good people. And so we're watching them get their comeuppance, which is something that feels much more the case when you watch Richard III at the end of the Henry VI plays, which come before it, because this is a set of four plays that go together 
which are very much actually what Game of Thrones' plot is modeled on. And if you want Game of Thrones, except with dialogue by Shakespeare, <laughs> read, read, read Henry VI and Richard III. Or you could even think, I think about like Othello, like the second that that little seed of doubt gets planted, like... You can't undo that. Yeah. Just talk to your wife. It's ridiculous, Rachel. <laughs> yeah. Like if he'd asked the right question or she had mentioned, you know, something or if Amelia had figured it out slightly before yeah. that there could have been that moment. And Lear very much has this structure of even up to the very end. Right. It could be okay. Mm-hmm. And it could be okay. And it could be okay. And it's not. But Romeo and Juliet seems like it's just especially based on like tons of accidents and misconceptions and like the the guy getting held up in quarantine and yeah. Do you think that even after so when is the last possible point it could be okay? Is it before Romeo kills Paris? Like once he's killed Paris, do you kind of think that's it for them as a couple? As Romeo and or Juliet points out, even if Romeo stops to pick flowers for five minutes on the way to the tomb, <laughs> so that when he arrives, she wakes up. Right. It could still be okay. But once he kills Uh, Paris. Now, once he's killed (laughs) Paris, then he's in huge trouble Mm -hmm. at that point. But Mercutio was also a kinsman of the prince. Uh And he was already upset about that. He was already willing to put that aside in order to have peace in Verona. Mm -hmm. He would probably, you know, penalize the Montagues a lot. But, you know he would probably also still recognize, wow, actually, if I can force these two families together, that would help me a great deal. It could still be okay. It would be rough. It could also be okay because let's say Romeo kills Paris, Juliet wakes up, he goes, oh no, whoops. (laughs) Romeo, you leave. Juliet will be like, "Uh, he saw me in the tomb. He got so upset, he killed himself. Hmm. Yeah, he was so sad. Yeah, yeah. But look, Romeo's right here. Why don't I marry him instead? Well, depending on what the wounds on Paris look like. <laughs> yeah, he killed himself <laughs> by like... how you choreograph that. But yeah, he killed himself by slashing himself all over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really sad. He just went okay. wild. The Renaissance forensics yeah. team, I don't know how good they were. Yeah, not, not. Yeah, he stabbed himself right in the back. It was weird. <laughs> yeah. uh, ending it before the death of Paris would certainly have meant things could have been much better than mm-hmm. with his death. But even with his death, the precedent that Mercutio's death didn't result in the destruction of the family means that there's still hope at that stage. I've always thought, mm-hmm. why didn't the apothecary take Romeo's money and give him fake poison? Because it's such a big risk. He's not going to find that apothecary. Yeah. I would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got poison. Sure, yeah, give me 40 ducats or whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then just Here's run a bag off. full of oregano. Take that. Sell it to your friends. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's afraid of a really angry, still alive, suicidal kid showing But the up. risk yeah. of selling the poison, I feel like, is so high. I'd yeah. rather have a teen yeah. boy come after me. It's been 400 years and we're still, like, upset that this didn't go well <laughs> for Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. 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 Uh, but they're star-crossed lovers, right? It's fate. And mm-hmm. remembering that Shakespeare and his audience believe in fate is an important part of this, that, you know, fate is against them. And in fact, the the bazillion chances they have for this to be okay, all being thwarted, mm. is part of proof of the existence of fate, proof of the existence of, of an inexorable plan that 
was cursing their families and through this action. Could that have also been like a source of comfort, do you think? Like, hey, at least there's a plan. Yeah. Like the plan is for all of us to die, but it's good that there's a plan. God wanted us to die. So that's good. (laughs) Well, because currently I believe there is no plan and I'm going to die anyway. So why not believe there's a plan, right? Yeah. And in the period, providence and belief in providence was very important. Uh, To give you a sense of this, Thomas More's Utopia 1520, so this is written before Shakespeare is born, but Shakespeare's grandparents are alive. In Mm. Thomas More's Utopia, in the imaginary perfect society of Utopia, all religions are permitted, except atheism in the form of believing there's no immortal soul uh, and not believing that there's providence. That you can have any religion so long as it believes that there's an immortal soul and that there's providence. which is a fascinating snapshot of what is considered to be essential in belief. And the common idea at the time is that if people don't believe that there's a divine plan, and if people don't believe that there's posthumous punishment, then people won't obey the law. Why would you be a good person if you aren't afraid of being punished after death? Because if you can get away with it, then why not? Yeah, why not? (laughs) Uh, There's a long-standing belief in this period in Europe that only somebody who fears providence and divine punishment will be able to be a citizen, that a country of atheists would just be an anarchy, that no one would obey the law without fear of divine retribution. Mm. Even Thomas Paine, you know, ferocious firebrand Thomas Paine, Thomas Paine who thinks that the Catholic Church is a giant conspiracy to take your money and that all organized religion should be banned. Mm -hmm. Thomas Paine argued that religious education should be mandatory in school. It didn't matter what religion, Mm. but that you couldn't have citizens who would obey the law and take government seriously Mm. if they didn't have a religious education and believe in some sort of creation and some sort of plan. He was a deist uh, in a very abstract, you know, no revealed religion is correct, no Bible, no Quran, no nothing, just like God exists and made the world and we understand it better by looking at trees and woodpeckers (laughs) than we do from looking at a book. But nonetheless, he thought that an atheist couldn't be a citizen. And that's just a good sampling of how how saturated with the idea of providence people in the period were. And when we look at a tragedy and like, you know, we think about we don't want spoilers, right? When we start a book, we don't necessarily want to know whether mm-hmm. it's going to have a happy ending or a sad happening. We like the suspense. He spoils it right in the very first paragraph. <laughs> right. You know, he spoils it on the playbill. It says the tragedy of blah <laughs> <laughs> or blah, a new comedy, right? You know, when you walk in, this is a tragedy. You know that it's a tragedy. Your suspense isn't, will it be okay? Your suspense is how many of them will die? Right. <laughs> will some of them live or is this a giant? Webster play where they're all gonna die and we're just waiting to see how right or is this a Shakespeare play where like half of them are gonna die we're gonna see you know as you're approaching the final scene of Hamlet and you're like okay Hamlet has to die but how many of the others are also gonna die Uh, so that you can be surprised about Gertrude but not you know other things Uh, So, you know, what his audience is experiencing, you know, when it says tragedy on the playbill, isn't what's going to happen. It's how is Providence going to get us to tragedy Mm -hmm. or how is Providence going to get us to happy ending? 
to comedy. What is the plan going to do? How are we going to arrive at the end? And there's a neat double layering to that because half of this is how will Shakespeare get us mm. there? <laughs> the other half is how will Providence get us there? Yeah. You know, what will happen? And so when you have the thing like, you know, there was an attack of plague in a place and so the thing was quarantined and the letter didn't get there. Boy, is that Providence right. being really, really direct. Yeah. Right? Because the plague is Providence just saying, hello, <laughs> I'm Providence. I'm striking you with the plague. Now I am directly interfering with this play. It's like when Moliere has deus ex machina. That's exactly what I imagine a plague to sound like. Right? <laughs> I I wonder, and, um, you know, just to kind of turn it back to your work, I mean, so it's interesting, and maybe you get this a lot, to be a historian who has written science fiction novels. So your, your works are set, like, what, 500 years in the future, very, very far. I'm not asking this in a literal way. Like, I'm not asking, do you literally think that you can tell the future? But knowing so much about the history obviously tells us a little bit about what we can expect when certain events occur. Is that kind of what makes you interested in science fiction or what kind of draws you to talk about the future when you spend so much of your academic career talking about the past? I mean, so there's nothing more like the future than the past. It's a long period of time <laughs> during which things occur and societies change. Nothing prepares you for science fiction as well as being a historian. And it's not that I'm a historian who became a science fiction writer. I'm a science fiction lover who realized, hey, being a historian means I get to play around with awesome worlds that are different from mm -hmm. our worlds. It's the perfect occupation for somebody who always wanted to write science fiction and fantasy. Mm. So the love went that way, not the other we, way. We've talked about when we have read, like when we read The Odyssey. I told them mm -hmm. that to me, when we read stuff that is so old and so different, it, it feels like we're reading about aliens on another planet. Like the society is so different. Yep. And they are more different than any alien Star Trek ever made up. Right. Because uh, <laughs> they live in a different universe. Yeah. You know, and it's I every time I get to know people from a different time period, it feels like first contact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm getting to meet people who live in a different world where they have different ways of judging true from false and right from wrong. It's not just right. that they believe different things, but they go about even figuring it out in different ways. And they live in a different universe. It's so yeah, cool. It's like the way that an ancient Greek looked at everything, like looked at gender, looked at hierarchy, looked at systems of morality is so, so different. Right. Looked at like what the soul is, right? you know, that the soul can yeah. decay over time, like it exists, but it degenerates slowly. That That's not even in the modern palette of ideas <laughs> right. about what it could be. It's so neat. And then in terms of predicting, a historian can't predict what will happen, but a historian can predict what won't stay the same, mm. Okay, right? Because we can look at things that are currently changing and are currently unstable. So in the Terra Ignota books, for example, the family unit is different. The family unit in the Terra Ignota books is something called the Bosch. Which Jackie would love. I told her about like yeah. four years ago. I said, Jackie, I found Wait, the system that you what it want is? for your life. I mean, I've told it to you, but yeah. But I don't remember it. I'll okay. guess what it is based on what I would love. It's uh, probably like a big commune of friends living together, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a group of somewhere between usually four and 12 adults who live together and raise kids together. This being enabled by super fast transportation. There are flying cars that are so fast that you can commute from anywhere on earth to anywhere else on earth that so no one amazing. is torn apart by employment you can all live together and work in any city you want and if you have a lunch meeting in paris and your spouse has a has to work in tokyo you can still live in the bahamas and it's fine mm. because transit is that fast and so people aren't pulled apart and everybody gets to you know raise kids together in one of these 
communes. Do I think that is the future of the family unit? Not necessarily. But the the atomized family unit of one couple in a house with kids is really recent mm-hmm. and really unstable and is already breaking down under the stresses of the dual career, career model and how do you right. do the extremely inefficient childcare. You know, this has only been around for less than a century mm-hmm. as a major model. And it's it's not even the case for all Americans. Like no. my grandma is Filipino and she, you know, she grew up in Hawaii. And still, when we visited my family in Hawaii recently, like my great aunt has a house that has like 20 people living in it. And it's all cousins and aunts and relatives mm-hmm. who look after the kids at the same like take turns looking after their kids. My grandma moved and lived with us when I was little. And like, that's very normal. You hear about a lot of families Maybe there's not a dad in the picture, but you have a mom and one of her sisters and the grandma. Mm-hmm. So feminism is not the problem. Culture <laughs> is the problem. Yeah. Well, and and artificial changing of culture. Because remember that the atomized family unit was a specifically American goal that people actively tried to enforce. And right. the stigma against extended families living together was an anti-immigrant stigma. So, for example, Henry Ford used to visit his workers' homes to make sure that their parents weren't living with them. He was a perv. I hate Henry Ford. Yeah, and you would be fired if you weren't living in the nuclear family model because Ugh. that was the way America was going to be set up and it was the way Americans were going to differ from the bad new immigrant community people that he wanted to stigmatize. Like okay. Italians or whatever. Well, it's, it doesn't matter. Everyone, <laughs> Italy, China, <laughs> you name it, that was the normal family unit, right? And this was the imposition of an artificial family unit. But it then becomes the standard family unit in American fiction. And right. it then becomes the standard imag- family unit that we sort of imagine and that a lot of science fiction imagines still being in place in 100 years. But any historian will tell you, no, it's a very artificial construct. It doesn't work. It's already falling apart. So do I think I can predict what will replace it? No. But can I predict that it'll be gone? Yes. Hmm. Right. Or that it'll not be a dominant model. And so there are lots of things like gender. What's the future of gender going to be? Not like the present because boy, is it changing fast. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, even between when the book was written and when the book came out, gender changed enough that when the book was still written, the book uses the singular they a lot. Mm -hmm. And when the book was first written and people were reading drafts, people were like, oh, I've never used the singular they before. I'm finding Mm -hmm. it really hard and really difficult. I think you need like footnotes to explain it. Or are you sure you... And by the time it came out, no, not even just now, but by the time it came out, people were like, didn't notice that it was there because they were already so used to it. (laughs) Yeah. It almost seems derivative now. Like, Within a very short time frame. That was five years. And so what's the future of gender going to be? You know, question mark, exclamation point. But it's not going to be what it has been. Right. And so a historian can tell what's going to be different. And so can any science fiction writer who does good historical research. So then the fun part is to say, okay, well, what's a way this could change? And what would that do to society? And how can we think about the good and bad outcomes of it? What's Mm going to change? Energy and what we energy use is going to change. Citizenship is going to change. Gender is going to change. Family unit is going to change. Transportation is going to change. How are they going to change? And if we composite, you know, these five changes, then what can we see about a society that has that in it Mm -hmm. so that we can chew at those? You know, one of the things I like to say is that 
science fiction helps us explore, uh, helps us fight our ethics battles before we get there. Yeah. You know, by saying, if we have this, what are the good sides and what are the downsides? Yeah. Right. Gives us like a little mental playground to work out the issues. Yeah, I think... Um, I think you explained it very well. <laughs> uh, for Jackie and Theo are not big readers of sci-fi and fantasy. They're, Theo's not a reader. He read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> he, he knows read. how to read, but he doesn't read that much. <laughs> and Jackie's more into poetry, I would say. Wouldn't you, Jack? Mm. I read uh, poetry and a lot of nonfiction, and I have kind of fallen off of the fiction wagon. I don't disdain fiction, just like I don't disdain TV. <laughs> I just... Haven't been reading a lot of it lately. But I read enough for the three of us, I would say, in terms she of the average yeah. <laughs> amount of books people read. I've been read. admiring your color-sorted your color sorted bookcase in the background. Well, I'll say is this is one bookcase of about maybe seven. This of is course. the only one that I color code. The rest I have to have by genre and then author's last name or like series title or else I'll, I'll be furious. <laughs> different organizational systems for different places is key. Okay, I think we should wrap things up. Yeah, thank you. So you've been so, so generous with your time and your knowledge. And I know this was not, I know you enjoy talking about this stuff, but I know it's also work. So just thank you so much. Yeah, for we really, really appreciate it. This. We, yeah. It's been a pleasure. And I would definitely love to come again uh, to talk about other stuff. So. We love oh, when people awesome. say that. Yeah. <laughs> do you, before we leave, yes. do you have any extra little Romeo and Juliet tidbits just to close out the episode. So this is less a tidbit than a, a sort of a, if you want to watch these things guide, mm. uh, because one of the delights of Shakespeare is watching it rather than reading it. There are DVDs that are produced by the Globe Theater in London of productions that are very close to being, trying to be close to a period production. And their Romeo and Juliet is a really neat one because it's one that has a very strong performer as the prince and really makes you think about three houses amongst mm. two. Uh, and the Globe also has a lot of other really great productions. I especially recommend the Globe Comedy of Errors, which is really great. They also have a very good Henry IV Parts One and Two and Henry V that you can get on DVD. And a fascinating Twelfth Night with an all-male cast where they're trying to look at what it would have been like in the period when you have a male performer mm -hmm. performing as a woman who's pretending to be a man <laughs> and how a male performer gets that across with that layering to be distinct from when a male performer is performing as a male character. Uh, so it's a very, very interesting Twelfth Night. Uh, a lot of their productions are, are really great, but those are the... I would say most outstanding ones. And but meanwhile, there's a BBC project that filmed all the Shakespeare plays in the very early 1980s, 1980 through 1982, uh, the BBC Shakespeare project. Many of the productions are dreadful. Oh no. Uh, largely because largely because they were being funded by a US educational group that wanted these to be used for classrooms. Mm -hmm. And we're very controlling of the directors, especially for these sort of canonical plays, mm -hmm. the ones that would be most likely to be used in classrooms and demanded the most conservative possible performances. So the funny bits aren't allowed to be funny. They're serious because this is Shakespeare. <laughs> and it's fascinating to watch. Their Romeo and Juliet has a very young Juliet in a way that's really striking, but is very sort of under energetic in a lot of ways, even though it's you know, 
played very straight. And their Hamlet, for example, which has Derek Jacobi as Hamlet, who is incredible, is nonetheless incredibly constrained in what they're allowed to do. And it's fascinating seeing brilliant performers like Patrick Stewart and Derek Jacobi performing within a very sort of strangleholded director. Hmm. But the plays that they didn't think would be used in classrooms, the oddball plays that nobody cared about, the directors had a lot more liberty. Hmm. And so there's a really experimental and fascinating production of Two Gentlemen of Verona. <laughs> and there's a Pericles Prince of Tyre, which is hard to find productions of. And the real masterpieces of that set are the three Henry VI and Richard III, directed by Jane Howell. Very uncommon for a woman to be able to direct Shakespeare that early in filming. And they are just magnificent. And she does really brilliant things with the fact that it's being filmed. So the set, for example, is a giant like play castle jungle gym oh and it's because they have no budget and it's all you know pink and yellow and blue and and as they're running around it they're having sort of play fights so that the first battle you come to feels very silly and like kids playing on the battlefield and she e even makes it sillier because they have hobby horses they have pretend bouncy horses mm -hmm. and so you have the two generals on their obviously fake pretend bouncy horses bouncing along and you're just chuckling at the silliness of this battle which means that the second battle when it's a little more serious feels more severe and the third battle when there's a little bit of fake blood feels a little bit chilling and the fourth battle when it starts getting very violent gets more so because there are 23 battles in the Richard in the Henry the Sixth Richard the Third sequence mm. And if you want your audience to sit through 23 battles and have them feel like the war really is getting worse, mm. what you do is set the bar really low for the first one so that you can escalate. And so if you compare that production to things like the recent BBC Hollow Crown, Henry VI, which had, you know, horses and armor and beautiful cinematography for all the battles, you get really tired of the battles and they all feel the same. Mm. Whereas in hers, where it started with that play castle and it gets worse and worse and they don't clean the set, it gets broken and it gets smeared with blood and it gets set on fire. And by the time Richard III is coming to power, it's burnt black. And you're like, Richard, look at England. It's already <laughs> literally covered with ashes. Don't start another, please don't start another war. And it's so much more poignant. I mean, she's working with, you know, used rugby helmets mm -hmm. to do this production. It's so much more poignant than the big budget versions because she's a mm. brilliant director who really zooms in also on the female characters. And that sequence has Queen Margaret, who is an incredibly powerful female character and one of Shakespeare's best that we never get to see. These are not available on DVD in the US. Oh no, no. But <laughs> you can get the box set of the complete BBC Shakespeare for about 90 bucks or 80 bucks for all 52, 30 something plays, right? And you can get a region free DVD player for about $30. So for an investment of $120, you can have all the Shakespeare plays. And you can see those really brilliant Henry VI, but you can also see the fantastic Titus Andronicus in that set, which is what Julie Taymor's Titus uh, based a number of its structures on. You can see a brilliant Coriolanus. You can get to see the oddball plays that nobody does, like Two Gentlemen of Verona. Mm -hmm. uh, so, And you can see the fascinating Romeo and Juliet with a really young Juliet, which is visceral in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. uh, so for those who would enjoy seeing it, 
the globe stuff you can get on DVD that plays for us easily, no problem. Uh, but that BBC set of the full plays plus getting a cheap region-free DVD player is worth thinking about. <laughs> uh, you can also watch those same DVD productions streaming on a streaming service called, I think it's Off-Broadway. It's a streaming service that streams video of Broadway shows that have closed. And it's $8 a month. So another thing you can do is get an $8 subscription for it for a couple of months to watch them all and then stop. Uh, and they have all the BBC ones. That's very interesting recommendations. I don't I don't know that we would have ever come across that DVD set you talked about any other way. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's a it's a very particular and, and complicated set yeah. of recommendations, but 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 super <laughs> worth it because it's a very unusual opportunity to see all those productions. But the comedies are dreadful. Oh, no. uh, because oh. they won't let them be funny. The Love's Labored Lost is like torturously bad. <laughs> uh, and the Taming of the Shrew is terrifying because they have John Cleese as you know the main groom in it. Mm-hmm. And John Cleese isn't allowed to be funny in it. Yeah, you don't want John Cleese there then. <laughs> so he's just terrifying. John Cleese is huge. John Cleese <laughs> yeah. is huge. And she barely comes up to like his... Belly. And yeah. he is so scary in that. And it's an amazingly strange experience watching terrifying, abusive John Cleese be forbidden to be funny. And you're like, what is even happening to my. Yeah. He is scary. Yeah. yeah. And he's amazing and an incredibly nice person. But like in that production, it's just bizarre. And it has uh, really good Richard II, Dark Jacobi's Richard II, which is great. It also has a number of productions that have young Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. She's in Cymbeline and also As You Like It. So anyway. Okay. Lots of lots of things to consider, but... Yeah, very much. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have a lot of show notes. <laughs> thank you so much for those two. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much to our guest, Ada Palmer. Thank you very much for coming on. You told us more than we knew there was to know. In fact, <laughs> I could literally talk to you forever. I would love to come again. And this was, I mean, you guys asked really great questions, which is also key to a great conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I mean, I literally think of you as like an oracle, though. I'm just like, look, I, need, I can ask Ada anything. <laughs> Toss a penny it. in the well and something's going to come out. <laughs> Grover. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Ada. We had a great time talking to you. We we would love to have you on again. I was thinking maybe someday, if you'd like to, we could do a, maybe like a more lighthearted episode where we just talk about like favorite Shakespeare adaptations Mm, along the lines of 10 Things I Hate About You or, you know, (laughs) the anime Romeo plus Juliet, that sort of adaptation. (laughs) Or the, what is it, Requiem for the Rose Prince, the Richard III manga? Yeah. Oh, I should have brought that up. Yeah. Well, maybe once that's finished airing, we can talk about it. But yeah, we'd love to have you back to do certainly that. But if something else comes across, if you ever think of a book you want to talk about, let us know. But otherwise, we'll definitely reach out to you again. Perfect. I feel like we've got a solid, good couple episodes out of this conversation. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I will look forward. Well, thanks so much and have a great rest of your week. Yeah. You too. Thank Thank you. Have a good night. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to listen to us talk to Ada Palmer about Romeo and Juliet and everything else. Yeah, we had a great time and we actually had enough good material for two episodes. So consider this part one and tune in in a few weeks to hear part two. We talk about the Black Plague, among a few other interesting things.
If you would like to check us out on our social media, we have an Instagram, a Twitter account, and a TikTok account that are all at Fire the Cannon Pod. We have a Facebook group that's Fire the Cannon Podcast, and we also have a website, which is firethecannonpod.com. If you would like to email us, we are firethecannonpodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing and you would like to contribute, then you should check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash firethecannon. We have some really good bonus content. We got some great stickers. We even have some cocktail recipes, book-themed cocktail recipes. So you should definitely check out our Patreon. And if you're able and willing to, we would really appreciate any amount of support you're able to give us. All right, everybody. Have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.